Y'all, this one hits home. Year after year, I watched one of my dearest friends, Stephanie Willis, and her husband, John, on their journey toward becoming parents. With every devastating loss, my heart hurt for them, but I was also inspired by Stephanie's tenacity and how she used each disappointment to fuel her dream of being a mom. Six years ago, that dream came true when Chase became the newest Willis. Let's start with you and John wanting to start a family. Will you summarize your experiences with not getting pregnant naturally and moving into fertility treatments, which ultimately led to your decision to adopt? Yes. Well, so, I mean, we went into it the same way everyone does, assuming that everything was fine, that it was going to happen in a month or two, and we would be on our way. And that just wasn't the case for us. You know, I feel like we took the hey, let's have fun with this approach, not putting too much pressure on ourselves. I mean, of course, we have an age difference between us. So it was always kind of in the back of our minds, but really tried not to put that pressure on ourselves. And then month after month, you know, my friend would show up each month and I would like just roll my eyes at first, kind of try to make a big deal of it. And then after six months and after a year, it wasn't so easy to overlook. You know, to be quite honest, during this process, I feel like a lot of people don't know this (laughs) until they're kind of in the thick of it or on the back end of it. But sex becomes a job when you're trying to get pregnant and you were so focused on it and it's not happening. It kind of takes the fun out of it. And it's like, oh my gosh, I think I'm ovulating right now. Boom, gotta go cancel your session. And it becomes a job. I mean, that's probably TMI. And if my dad is listening, he's probably pretty grossed out right now. But that's what what it was for us, you know. And we agreed that we were going to try for a certain amount of time before getting, you know, an expert involved. We eventually went to a fertility specialist. The interesting thing about that is that most people or most doctors don't automatically look at both people. They look at the one who they feel like has the higher probability of being infertile or having an issue. And so for us, that was John. So all of the attention kind of went towards him. There were challenges with that. We were already, you know, our egos were a bit bruised. Humans are supposed to be able to recreate if they want to. And to find out we were going to need scientific (laughs) intervention was a lot. And I mean, of course, they did check my ovaries to see, okay, are things moving as they should? But it was like very overview kind of stuff, not anything in depth. But with John, it was different. He had to go into the, I always called it the magazine room, even though I'm sure they probably don't want to keep magazines in there to get samples. Right. All of this is awkward. I'm saying it and it's feeling awkward. But this is just what infertility is like, okay? I'm just going to throw it all out there. And so he had to do this multiple times, go in, give samples. They were trying to isolate, you know, healthy sperm and see what they could find. Meanwhile, we're hopeful. We're like, hey, everyone gets pregnant with fertility intervention. I remember being in the parking lot of a sushi restaurant and our doctor calls and she's like, hey, John, do you have a second? Yeah, sure. She says, we wanted to double, maybe triple check, but we have found an abnormality in every single sperm of yours that we have tested. It is a, I'm trying to remember to say this correctly, but a trans balance dislocation, something like that. Ultimately, what it means is 
in every single sperm, his chromosomes break off certain chromosomes and they try to correct themselves. What that equals is a big disaster. And she said, I'm surprised that John was born. She says it so nonchalantly. He's sitting there with his mouth dropped. My heart is stopped at this point. And she's just like, it's no big deal at all. I think it's time for us to look for a donor. Oh, wow. And we just kind of looked at each other like, wow, should we have had this conversation in person? Like, this is pretty deep. First of all, you're saying his sperm is impossible to use. And you're piggybacking off of that saying, oh, and John, you probably shouldn't be alive. Interesting that you're here. Right. After that initial shock, I'm not sure that either of us actually ate our lunch. I think we just kind of moved things around on the plate. It took us a little while to not only accept the fact that he had this issue, but that we were going to need to consider using a stranger's sperm to get pregnant. Let's just have a moment of silence and think about that for a second. Okay. Right. (laughs) It was wild. For me, I had such strong motherly instincts. I was just so ready for this that I was like, okay, sign me up. For John, it took him a little bit to come around, but our options in that moment were surrogacy, and that scared us even more for using donor. And so we finally made the decision, yes, we're going to do this. And it was the weirdest process ever. It messes with your mind because you're like, okay, what does matter to us? And should these things matter? You know, they're showing us GPAs, careers, uh, all kinds of history, medical, of course. We decided on a donor and I was not going to call him donor XYZ99543. So we named him Chad. So (laughs) we were going in for a treatment. I would be like, all right, Chad, you going to pull through for us? Come on. John didn't go to these appointments. And I think that he needed that space kind of in those moments, but they were very uncomfortable, physically and emotionally very uncomfortable. And what's worse is month after month, they were unsuccessful. Sometimes we had to take longer pauses in between treatments and the disappointment continued really. Fertility treatments are very expensive. And not just, you know, financially speaking, just on who you are, your strength, quite honestly. Plus all the emotions. Oh my gosh. The emotions are so out of control because you're on so many hormones at the same time. And so I kind of turned into someone I didn't recognize. I was so emotional. I would go to a grocery store, see someone pregnant or with a baby and just start sobbing. My best friend was pregnant during my entire fertility treatment window. And that was hard because I love her and I I support her and I want her to have her second child. And hearing her having morning sickness and I feel like normal complaints of any pregnant person. And I'm just sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, I would give anything to be puking right now. To be experiencing all of those first. Right. And, but the, the drugs definitely made every molehill into a mountain. Uh, I can't even imagine. Whew. Even with adoption, 
but especially during fertility treatments, I would have days where I would feel like I had made a mistake telling the few people we had told we were trying because you're dealing with this bad news and you're feeling it every minute of the day, but you're not having to talk about it necessarily. And then someone says, so any word? Have you tested yet? Any luck this month? And then it's like the dam breaks and you can't control your emotions. You know, looking back, maybe it was a good thing to have that release. But in the moment, I just wished, you know, that people wouldn't ask because if I were pregnant, if it had been successful, the whole world would have known. (laughs) Yeah, you'd be talking about it. (laughs) Yes. No response is a response. And so in hindsight, I definitely questioned if I should have shared what we were going through when we were doing it. It seemed like everybody was rubbing it in your face every time they mentioned it, even though, of course, they were meaning well, and they wanted to know that everything was going well. I feel like most people, their intentions were right. They were in a good place. But I don't know. It's really hard to explain when someone's trying to support you how it can feel so opposite when you're in the middle of it, and especially with the added... (laughs) The elevated emotions from drugs, we'll say. (laughs) Right, exactly. And not even like how you said it almost turned into a job. It was. And then there's also the thing, how long do we do this before we change course? Exactly. It was was very tough. And, you know, we're so focused on what we hope the end result will be that it's not only a job. It affects relationships. And... You know, I have friends even right now who are, you know, starting their their journey with fertility treatments. And I'm like, please, whatever you do, don't lose each other in the process. Like, make time for intimacy. And by that, I, I'm not just talking about the act. I'm talking about the transparency, the openness, the cuddling, the supporting each other. Because it's easy to lose sight of what each other needs when you're so focused on a baby. And then you're all up in your emotions. Yes, for sure. So once y'all made the decision to adopt, what were some of the challenges you and John ran into toward getting approved as adoptive parents? When we realized, okay, we were at our sixth treatment, we were out of sperm. (laughs) The next question for us was, okay, now what? Just because this didn't work, doesn't mean we want a child any less. So we had the discussion about surrogacy. Of course, you hear the horror stories, right? Like the surrogate runs off with a baby or holds the baby hostage, you know, the HBO kind of storyline. and Or there is no baby. Right, right. And we are at that point probably a good, I don't know, Forty or $50,000 into just the medical part of this. And just kind of looking at bigger picture, I did not leave any time to just like breathe and, and get our heads together. For me, I am very proactive, jump to the next step. We can't slow down. So I immediately started making phone calls to adoption agencies, to adoption attorneys. You know, there are so many different ways that you can adopt through a traditional agency. There are attorneys who only do the, you know, the legalities. And there are also attorneys who help connect people who need each other. So with 
agencies, really with every conversation, I would call and the first question they would ask is, why are you considering adoption? Well, I would try to give them, you know, the bullet points and a nice 90 second summary. But by second 30, 35, I'm crying. You know, I was not seeing a therapist at that time. And so having to really just be that vulnerable in a 90 second statement, I I couldn't get through the whole statement without crying. And interestingly, the response on the other end of the line was either crickets or someone with no empathy for my situation. And that is so odd to me. There was never, I'm, you know, and I'm so sorry that you're going through this. It wasn't like that. I mean, I guess a lot of adoption professionals, they just do it every day. So they're desensitized to it a lot like fertility doctors. They have done it for so long that they're really not emotional about it anymore. As someone doing their initial research, that was really hard. We were told, you know, your husband is over 45 and we don't work with couples who are over 45 and they would give their reasons for that. Others would say, are you actively involved in a church? And though we are spiritual people, we are not, you know, members of a church. So that was kind of another strike against us. And most agencies are faith-based or at least in Tennessee. So I thought, okay, well, maybe agencies aren't for us. So let me just talk to a few attorneys. So I called one of the most popular, if not the most popular adoption attorney in Nashville, told her our situation. And she said, look, I'm just going to be honest with you. You have an age gap. You're not members of a church. Unless you know someone who knows someone who is pregnant and considering adoption, this isn't going to happen for you. Oh, wow. That was the most blunt anyone had been with me. I got off that call and cried so hard. I think it hit me what we were up against in that moment. And for the first time ever, I said, you know what? I need to accept that this isn't going to happen for me. And if you know me, you know how un-Stephanie <laughs> that <laughs> statement is. But I believed it. I don't know if it was a combination of self-pity or defeat. You know, I can't really put my finger on it. But I let her stop me. And for John, he kind of went into protective mode, like, okay, let's just focus on what we do have. You know, maybe this isn't in the cards for us. Let's focus on getting a condo at the beach so we can spend more time there and kind of like trying to take my mind off of this. He is a one dog kind of person. And he said, let's go adopt a puppy. And we ended up with rock and jazz. And it was incredible to have them, especially during this hard time. John is a session musician. He's gone most days from 10 in the morning until nine at night, sometimes even longer. And so, you know, having those puppies did really, I know you're a dog person. So I I feel like you understand what dogs do for us in moments like this. Yes, absolutely. But I let her break me, this attorney, and tried my best to just not think about it and convince myself that I was going to be one of those people who tried and did not succeed, but moved on and still lived a great life. My friends, a few of them, would bring it up when appropriate over this next year or so and say, you know, maybe you and John should talk about this again, or, you know, are you sh- you're so motivated and creative, like there's got to be a way to make this happen. Maybe you should try again. And I would always shut them down and be really tough about it. 
and then get off the phone or back in my car and cry. One day I got a text message from my best friend and she said, you need to try again. Like I'm here. Talk to John. Let's do this. And for whatever reason, it woke me up. She woke me up. I went to John again. I don't procrastinate. <laughs> I went straight to John. We had a business meeting in the bathtub. That's where we always had our business meetings prior to parenthood. <laughs> and I just said to him, hey, this is important to me. I understand if it's not what you need, but it is what I need. So what are we going to do about it? And he's like, let's do it. And the very next day, we made a YouTube video. First thing we ever did. Just opened up our hearts, our home, our our intentions. And that is where we started. I think you really needed that space to process up until that point, what had happened and what hadn't happened. Yeah. I mean, I kept so busy during that year, just really got involved in animal rescue and was going to college as an adult and just really trying to not think about it. But In all honesty, there was never a day that passed that I didn't think about it. I got better about seeing people out and about with their babies and their swollen ankles and hiding my pain, Mm -hmm. but it never went away. And I kept certain things in what should have been a nursery. And I would sometimes just kind of go up and things that belonged to my nephew when he was a baby. And this Santa, like first Christmas outfit that I'd bought just knowing that I would eventually have a baby in it. And I would sneak off occasionally and cry and hold those things. So it was a weird time, a lot of growth, a lot of reflection. It was a loss. Just hearing those words from that lawyer on that day in a weird roundabout way felt like a death. Kind of like a house of cards. Yeah. It's like the one that made everything fall over. Yeah. I mean, I'd been so optimistic up until that point. Those were tough words. And especially the emotional part of it. For sure. Hormones are (laughs) raging and everything. And I mean, on one hand, she was being honest. She was being very blunt. I guess you could say that's a good thing. But on the other hand, like where you were in your emotional state, that was really hard to accept. It was. I feel like in any initial conversation with someone who you know has gone through something traumatic, even if it is an everyday conversation for you, I feel like empathy and hope should still be part of your response, even if things look not so great for someone. I mean, words have consequences. And for me, it was just defeat. I really can't think of another way to explain it. Just total defeat. And emotional exhaustion. Yes, 100%. So you talk about this YouTube video that you created. Talk about the process for creating this video and your feelings about putting your story out into the world. I work in public relations. I've been doing videos for clients, nonprofits for some time. And storytelling is where I am most suited. Finding a way to connect with someone. And when it's authentic, even better. I feel like if you're not authentic, it's pointless to even put yourself out there. Really what it was, was, okay, If I were in a situation where I felt like I could not be what I needed to be for my child and I were looking for someone to take on this responsibility of raising a child, what would I be looking for? And so that's how I tried to approach it. So we talked about 
why we couldn't have a child biologically, why we want to be parents. You know, I kind of laugh every time Chase asks to watch Buddy the Elf or Jurassic World for the 50,000th time because I remember in that video saying, we're ready to watch cartoons on repeat. We're ready to wipe snotty noses. Those are the things I thought about. And so when I do them now, I kind of chuckle a little bit and say, well, maybe I shouldn't have emphasized that bullet point so loudly. Here we are really just talking about why we love children. We showed pictures of the park near our house and a little about John's career and about my work in the community, just really trying to show, hey, these are the things that are important to us. And these are the things that our child will get to do, you know, so it it was, we felt very bare, but I don't regret it. Because that one thing that we did of the many, many things we did, the video is what people commented on most. Your initial adoption for a girl fell through. Yes. Being a pivotal moment in an already emotional journey. How did it impact you? We went with adoption assistants. They have a Kentucky office and a Nashville office, and they were so wonderful. When I told them about my experience with agencies, they recommended an attorney in California who coordinates matches and does what an agency does on a smaller, kind of more boutique level. So fewer families, fewer birth mothers. This attorney was actually the one who kind of facilitated this first situation We flew out to Santa Maria, California, to meet this young woman. We put a lot of ourselves into that relationship with her and just really wanted to make her feel supported. She wanted to be very involved in what we were doing. You know, she wanted to see as I was building the nursery. So it was her idea for us to name her baby girl. And for me and this really being kind of our first legitimate match, I was excited. So of course, I'm looking for family names. Jada is where we landed. And even she would refer to the baby as Jada. But we were very involved until she called and said, hey, I am having contractions I'm heading to the hospital. Do you guys want to head on out here? So I had been packing for that moment and unpacking and packing and repacking and just really to look at all the cute baby stuff and dream for months. So the moment came, we were so excited. We flew to California. The baby wasn't born for maybe, I think, four days after we arrived, but we were at the hospital. We were with her. I brought the camera and we started to feel weird the day of the birth we were getting signs from her friends who were also there but were trying really hard to ignore them and our attorney was you know visiting the hospital and really trying to support us and different states have different I guess regulations would be the best way to explain it in some states when the birth parents or birth mother sign their parental rights away at the hospital then in that moment she can't change her mind. In other states, the paperwork is signed, but she may have, or if there's a birth father involved, they would have up to two weeks to change their minds. Well, in California, I believe it was 10 days. And so even, you know, knowing that we would be leaving with our baby and get the news that we have to bring her back, that was terrifying. I mean, imagine you're already in love with this baby. Her name is already on her nursery wall back home. You know, you've been dreaming for her. There's this anticipation and buildup from all of these years of disappointment. The day 
before we were supposed to bring her back with us to the bed and breakfast we were staying at, a call came. And when the phone rang, she was more of a texter. I knew something was not right about it. And it was her friend saying, hey, I'm so sorry to tell you this. We would just prefer that you guys not come back up here. It would make this decision harder. And that was that. I'm not even sure I told John. I don't know that I had the words. I I just remember falling with no control to the floor and just sobbing my eyes out. And I believe I had a handful of diapers when the phone rang because I was preparing the hospital bag. And so there's a mess everywhere and I'm laying in the floor crying. And we're in a bed and breakfast, so the walls aren't as thick as they would be in a hotel. The other families who kind of knew what we were there for I'm sure, heard me fall apart. Uh, When we called our lawyer, she's like, do you want to stick around for a few more days? I was like, no, I've got to get back home. I'm taking the next flight back to Nashville. And no one back home knew what we were doing in California. We hadn't told anyone really at that point. But we just got the next flight. And I remember sitting in the car because I couldn't go back inside where I'd gotten this news and posting, telling everyone what we were there for, what had happened, and just feeling like, how does this keep happening to us? Was I wrong? Should I have jumped into this? Was John right to protect himself and to try to protect me and accept our fate? And that's, that's really how it felt in that moment. And I remember being in the airport and someone saying to me, looking at the the stroller that had the car seat and saying, where's your baby? Oh my gosh. There were no words. I could not even respond. And the worst part was knowing one of the reasons that the birth mother had chosen adoption is because of some situations in her life. You know, government agencies had already said, if you choose not to adopt, this child is going to end up in foster care. And she did. We followed along best we could, knowing that a baby I loved, who I already felt like was in my family, within a matter of days or weeks, would be in the foster care system. That was a hard pill to swallow, knowing that there was another option for her that would have been beautiful. But also feeling guilty for feeling self-pity because I've never had to make a decision to place my child for adoption. So it was weird. You want to be mad at her, mm-hmm. you know, but you can't be because it's her her baby. Yeah. So she's not wrong for making the decision she made, but it didn't make our loss feel any lighter. Whew. I feel like we need to take a minute. It's a lot. <sighs> But what I love about you is you just don't quit. You know, you might have a moment where you just fall apart. And I think that's so needed as far as healing from trauma. You do need to release those heavy emotions. Yes. I feel like that was the moment where I decided I'm going to be very open about this. And so my release started in that rental car and I brought it home with me. I came back with an attitude of, yes, I have a team, but... I can do some of this myself. Like I'm going to be proactive. I wasn't working a full-time job at that time. So I just came home, cried when I needed to cry and really just took this journey to the street, so to speak, really just involved our social network. That's when I really started sharing our video 
friends were sharing it. We were just getting so much support. And there were days where people would be like, oh, so how's it going? Any any progress? And I would have moments where I would think, oh, why did I make this so public? But then the positive support and feedback that we got was just so inspiring and encouraging. And at that point, people were so invested in our journey that they were stepping up saying, hey, give us something physical we can do, like other than share, what else can we do? You know, I remember going to North Carolina and my mom pulling together a few of her friends to help me work on a mailing. We licked a thousand envelopes that weekend, just treating it like I would a marketing or a public relations campaign. People were just coming out of the woodwork to help us. It was really cool. And I was judged for it by some people. Like, why are you telling everyone everything about your life? I think at that point, it was just like, you know, I'm going to be a mom. And I don't know how, but when people think of adoption, I want their first thought to be Stephanie and John. That was my mission. Because if that lawyer, that lawyer in Nashville, if she was right, and it was going to be someone who knew someone who knew someone. I wanted to make sure that someone knew about me. And that's what we did. That's amazing. There's definitely value in being vulnerable. When I would get emotional, I would think, how can I turn this emotion into strategy in this moment? When I would want to just sit in the rocking chair in the nursery and cry, I would think, no. All right, strategic planning mode. What's next? What can I do? Who can I call? What do I need to post? And during this time, by the way, we're getting calls. We're getting private messages from people saying, hey, would you be willing to talk to this person? They're not really considering adoption, but for reasons we can't share, they really should be, but they're unsure about it. Will you talk to this person? We were also putting ourselves out there on Adoptimist, which is kind of like Match.com, but for adoption. I mean, we're everywhere. I had eggs in every basket I could find. Really, in every stage of this process, it was a full-time job, at least for me, because I didn't want that downtime to worry. So I would just jump into my next kind of plan of attack. And meanwhile, I would get phone calls in the middle of the night. And if it was an 800 number, I knew that it was a mother considering placing her child for adoption because through Adoptimist, you call through their website. So they don't have your direct number. You don't have theirs. But I would get, you know, woken up in the middle of the night, make some coffee and listen. Because when they first call, that's what they need from you. It was interesting having such deep conversations with people you don't know very well and saying, well, yeah, I'm being vulnerable. But oh my gosh, their vulnerability right now is so much greater than I've had to express or share. But once I decided in November of 13, we were going to do this, it happened fairly quickly. So it was maybe 11 months from the time we started until we were holding our baby. Well, speaking of that baby, (laughs) the day Chase was born. Yes. Describe what it was like holding him for the very first time. Meeting his birth mother, if you don't mind, I'd like to back up for a second because we lived every horror story you've heard of, but we've also seen the most beautiful outcome as well. And that's our boy and not just him, but his birth mother as well. 
you know, I talked about YouTube being the first thing we ever did mm-hmm. and how coming back from California, brokenhearted, we opened this up to the whole world. The day Chase was born, we were not the only ones celebrating. Hundreds, if not thousands of people who went along this journey with us were there. People were saying they stayed up to see the announcement of his birth because they knew we were going into the OR and stayed up till midnight waiting for this announcement. All of those shares, we know that there are algorithms with YouTube, with all social media that boost you kind of to the top based on how many people view the video, how many people watch the video all the way through. Those are things that elevate your status within that algorithm. And because of all of those shares and people committing themselves to, you know, watching the whole thing, which really does help. If you're trying to help someone in their YouTube channel, watch the whole video. Because of that, a woman in Texas had made the decision or was making the decision that she was going to place her unborn baby for adoption and was on YouTube. You know, she did some research about adoption in general. And then she went to YouTube after reading in a thread, someone had said, hey, if you are considering adoption, please take a look at our profile And she went to his page and I remember her saying that he was so creepy that it almost scared her away from the adoption thinking altogether because he was the creepiest person she had ever seen in her life. But she said the next video that popped up on YouTube, they recommend one similar to what you were just watching, right? Mm -hmm. Was our video. So call it random, call it fate. We popped up next and she watched that video on repeat the entire day. And she called me at like nine o'clock that night, which wasn't unusual. I kept my phone on all the time. And she said, I've watched this video so many times. I feel like I know you and we're supposed to be having this conversation. So before I get started, are you still looking? And I said, absolutely. And that was the start of a really incredible relationship outside of adoption, just as people, as women, She knew what we had gone through. She had checked us out. She had read my blogs about the failed adoption. And she was amazing to me. I felt like I had given so much of myself in trying to support the emotional needs of other women I'd spoken to. And here's this woman saying, how can I support you? I know you probably lost some trust in this process, but I need you as much as you need me. So that was such a different experience for me. But with all of these things, there were multiple agencies, multiple attorneys who were involved at that point. And it was this YouTube video that I had made by myself for free and posted that brought her and ultimately my son to me. It was just so easy. She invited me out to doctor's appointments. So I would fly to Texas. Thank God for Southwest direct flights. I would fly to Texas. We would go to appointments. We would, you know, have lunch and just enjoy getting to know each other. It wasn't always about the baby. It was about who we are as people. And I feel like that's important when you're trying to establish trust. Mm -hmm. And trust is really important when you're saying, I am placing a human I love with my whole heart in your arms and believing your promise to me that you're going to give him a life that I can't. So it was really important to me to 
let her into my heart, into my soul, and she willingly let me into hers as well. So fast forward, getting to the hospital, I was terrified. I have a fairly decent poker face, but she would look at me and just say, don't worry, this is happening. God ordained this. And I didn't even know I was showing (laughs) worry. (laughs) Um, John says it's because I was laughing too much and I laugh when I'm nervous. We spent the whole day with her in the hospital. The hospital were giving us a room as well on the same hall as her, but opposite end. And I remember them coming in that evening of his birth. And she says, wait a second. First of all, talk to her. She's his mom. Second of all, we've already talked about this. When he's born, he goes to their room. And they're like, I know, but legally we're supposed to talk to you until papers are signed. She's like, I don't care. I'm going to say the same thing to you every time. That is his mom. That is his dad. Ask them. And if you need me to confirm that I'm cool with it after they respond, then fine. Fast forward, natural birth wasn't going to happen. We attempted that. I was holding her hands, trying to entertain her. And her dad came in at one point and asked to have the room. And oh my gosh, it scared me to death. So her dad is in and he's like, are you sure? And he told me that he asked her that. He was transparent about it. He says, are you sure? Because we can figure this out if you're not sure. And she said, dad, she would always say the same thing to everyone. God ordained this. Mm. I am positive. There is not a doubt in my mind. So we went down to the OR. I got to go in with her. We had a photographer there with us and I held her hand while they you know, made the incision and she would squeeze my hand. Immediately, the doctor said, Mama, get the camera ready. He's almost ready for you. And then in an instant, here's this really loud boy. They put him in my arms. And it was like a moment of total fear, total bliss, and shock. I don't even know that I was fully processing what was happening. Because one second, it's about me and her. And then the next second, here's this baby. And I walk over to her. He's being cleaned up by the nurse at this point. And they're like, you come with us. We're going to get her stitched up. And I go over. I'm like, are you, do you want me to stay with you? And she says, you have a baby to go raise. I'll talk to you later. And so I walked across the hall with this really loud baby. And John could hear him (laughs) across the hall. (laughs) He was like, when I heard that crying, I knew he had to be a Willis. Good grief. He's got some pipes. It was this moment of, I don't know that I've ever been so confused. I think the responsibility of raising a human and the responsibility of like living up to being the woman and the mom that I've promised this other amazing woman I would be hit me like a ton of bricks. And I haven't really told many people this, but I was scared to death the first eight hours. Not having second thoughts, but like fear. Well, I think for the first time, this was happening. It was. And also, I wasn't talking to anyone about it. I think I may have told my sister and maybe my mom and best friend and John, of course. But like, I was totally freaking out. And I think the nurses noticed it as well. Because one, who we really just had a great time with. She came in and she says to me, this might be a helpful read for you. 
I know you're busy, but just wanted to, to share this with you. And it was a pamphlet on essentially postpartum depression in adoptive parents. I didn't know at that point that an adoptive parent could feel postpartum depression or like anxiety. I didn't even know that was a thing. So I'm reading about it. And I remember texting mom and my sister and saying, Oh my gosh, I think this is going on. I'm a nervous wreck. And I think that it was just the weight of everything. Also, the fear that it was going to be taken away from me. Nothing about it was simple. It was beautiful. And the birth mother made sure that it would be. But it was very complex. I didn't sleep that night. What are some things people can do and say to support someone who is going through the adoption process? Well, I think asking about timelines, matches, or updates should be approached very carefully, if at all. Again, if something great is happening, chances are I'm going to shout it from the rooftop. Whoever is going to be like, oh my gosh, this is what just happened. Can you believe it? When you're feeling low and things aren't happening as quickly as you would like, it's a smack in the face. And again, it's, it's unintentional. I would try to not hold it against people, but I can still, I can remember exact locations geographically of phone conversations with people I love who would say things like, if it's meant to be, it's going to be, or it, it doesn't happen on your time. It happens on God's time. For me, still coming off of, I mean, fertility drugs, you don't just like stop swallowing them and become normal. Mm-hmm. It changes you like uh, John and I will still have conversations about I am a different person I know that sounds kind of crazy and maybe it's just a combination of that and also just the strength of who I am as a mom now that affected my personality but I'm, I'm a different person now but I would get angry like I I wouldn't say it but I'm like what it's gonna happen on God's time or if it's meant to be it will And I I think the hardest thing, oh my gosh, for me, was people complaining about Mm. pregnancy or stretch marks. And some of them didn't know what I was going through. I can't blame them. Mm -hmm. Others did. I'm not referring to my best friend. She was very supportive. and, And honestly, the reason, as I mentioned, that I did decide to give it another shot But there were others who, and still to this day, people, friends of mine, oh my gosh, I'm never going to get this baby weight off or, oh, these stretch marks. And I'm thinking, I mean, I'm glad I know that I became a mom the way I was meant to, but goodness gracious, like I'd be okay having a pregnant belly or, you know, stretch marks (laughs) right now. So in Mother's Day, ooh, social media, Mother's Day. I'm so lucky to be mom to such and such. I'm so blessed to be the mother of these children. And even though those people were not even thinking of me when they posted it, I would internalize it. Oh, so I'm not blessed. I'm unlucky. And I would still show up to social media on those days because I would want to do something nice for my mom. But it hurt. I cried. I could rarely even eat on Mother's Day because you internalize all of that. So I just feel like Mother's Day is a time that everyone should think about the fact that it's not easy or even possible for everyone. That's the one day. It's like no excuses. If you don't support people who may silently be suffering any other day of the year, 
include them on Mother's Day, include mm-hmm. them on Father's Day. And I, you know, if I had a friend right now going through what I was going through, I wouldn't say, oh my gosh, that sucks so much. What did she say to you? Like, how are you feeling? I would say, hey girl, I'm going to grab a, a bottle of Prosecco and some pizza and I'm coming over tonight and we're going to watch something on mm-hmm. Netflix, okay? And I would show up and we would do that and we wouldn't talk about it unless she wanted to. Just to feel normal and to have like an evening where it's not about that because your life mm-hmm. is about that when you're in it. And the mother load of all comments. Everything happens for a reason. Yes. And while I agree, (laughs) I agree with that statement, but it's not something that needs to be said. That's almost like kicking someone when they're down or rubbing salt in their wounds to say that to them when they're hurting. Yeah. Because at that moment, it's hard for them to accept that. For sure. Even though they know it's true. Yes. But you get, I mean, let me just tell you, People talk about the stages of grief, right? Mm -hmm. I went through every one of them. I even went through a time where I'm even afraid to say this out loud, but I was mad at God. And if anyone made any reference to God, I would roll my eyes like in my mind because I was like, okay, God clearly doesn't want to give me something that I feel like and everyone who knows me would agree I was born to be. And that's something I had to work through. I know, especially finding Chase's birth mother and her being so spiritual and constantly saying this is a God thing. And I think that even though I I didn't want to hear the God references at the time, he sent her to me because I needed to believe in him again. I needed to believe in his plan again. And so much of our conversations were about God ordaining this and that element. So in a roundabout way, yes, things happened as they were supposed to. And and I think that she brought me more than a son. She brought me hope and a revamped trust in God. That's incredible. And deep. <laughs> uh, yeah. This is like therapy, Estella. <laughs> it really is. But this is what I love. I love meaningful conversations. I didn't realize how much I needed a meaningful conversation about it. That's awesome. So you have valuable resources for those seeking emotional and financial support. Yes. There are different ways that you can adopt. There are children, even newborns, in the foster care system who need to be adopted, often sets of siblings. So going that route, I would say just based on the many people who I've met, you know, over the the course of seven years, it takes longer. But financially speaking, it is the least expensive legally to adopt. And I've had someone ask me, so you put a price tag on a baby? And it's like, no, it's not It's not like that, but in traditional forms of adoption through an agency, through an attorney, birth mothers need support. They are not always in the best place in their life, and that's why they're making this decision for their child. They need help. So legally, adoptive families can cover the expenses of a birth parent or birth couple once they match through six to eight weeks past the birth of the child. And that can include their bills, their groceries, 
maternity clothes, gifts even. You're allowed to gift certain things. And for us, that was never a burden, even though it's not like the money was just sitting there. We had to be resourceful, but we wanted to support her. We didn't want her to have to wonder how she was going to feed herself or her daughter, you know, how she was going to get to work. So adoption is not cheap. Fertility treatments are not cheap, but there are organizations, there are grants. One I know of specifically is through an organization based out of New York. They support families all over the country. They are helpusadopt.org. You know, as far as other resources go, I would want to tell anyone who is considering adoption, find someone, even if you keep hitting roadblocks with empathy, because it matters. Find someone who hasn't become desensitized. And for me, that was Adoption Assistance. That's the name of the organization. I would encourage anyone who has a question, reach out to someone who's been there. And the other thing is that there are groups on Facebook that I found to be just so helpful. They have articles, sometimes from a birth mother's perspective, just such great information that even though my son is now six, I still kind of look at these groups as lifelines because I the conversation never stops and really it shouldn't. So I would say get involved in some of those groups. You just type, you know, adoption families, adoption groups on Facebook. And then the other thing I would say is be proactive yourself. Get out there. Be safe about it. Adoptimist. We had a lot of people contact us with ill intent. A lot of people who are trying to prey on people who are going through a rough time and take advantage, even illegal activity going on. But I would highly recommend Adoptimist. The openness of that platform where there's not a third party involved, it's just you and that other person getting to know each other. And then if you talk and you're like, hey, I really feel like this is a good potential match, then you say, hey, would you be willing to talk to our attorney? And then you kind of get their input on, hey, is this legitimate? And kind of like starting to get the process rolling. If you're timing our journey from trying to get pregnant to finally having a baby, that's several years. But once we jumped in, we were very intentional. We are looking to adopt. We are going to make this happen. Surround yourself with people who know the laws and can support you because there will be days that you really, really need it. Back to the community support. It's such a powerful thing. Mm -hmm, For sure. And I'll go ahead and include all of the organizations and links that you mentioned in the show notes for this episode. Great. And like I said, I mean, there are so many options out there. Once you find your person, for us, it was Jan Shamara, the attorney in California. If you find that person, they're going to know about Adoptimus. They're going to know that you can spread your intentions. That was kind of my theme. I'm spreading my intentions because it sounds better than eggs. But (laughs) (laughs) at that point, I was pretty mad at my eggs. But you've been right there with us. I mean, you've watched it all unfold in real time. And you're still watching it unfold. You're seeing Chase become this amazing, empathetic, confident boy 
I have been criticized for sharing so much of his life and allowing him to have his own public figure profile and for letting him be in commercials and and whatever it is my little star is interested in being in that moment because they're concerned about privacy issues. Like, do you really want people to know so much about your child? Shouldn't you want to protect him? My response is very clear that Chase is mine and I am his because of all of you. And to not share him with all of you who worked so hard and prayed so hard and bumped that <laughs> video up in the YouTube algorithm without all of you guys, I don't know that this is where we would be. And so I feel like Chase is all of ours. He symbolizes so many things for different people. He's hope. He's the the fairy tale, I don't want to say ending, but beginning that people need to see in this world, especially knowing what we went through. Someone worded it so perfectly on a sign. You guys were there. So many of our friends and, and supporters were there on FaceTime or in person at the airport when we got off of the plane. Someone was holding a sign that said, Chase equals YouTube miracle boy or something like that. Gosh, if that isn't the truest statement, you know, he's our YouTube boy. That is literally how I became a mom. God and YouTube and a lot of great friends. So I'll keep sharing them as long as you guys want to <laughs> follow along and hopefully continue to inspire people not to give up when they see the odds stacked against them. One little P.S. I hope that the attorney who told me that it probably wouldn't happen for us, I hope she hears this podcast. And I don't mean her any ill wishes whatsoever. In fact, of all the attorneys I could hire to finalize the adoption and make Chase a Willis, I called her. I didn't tell her that she's the one who temporarily broke my spirit, but I hired her to finalize our adoption as a symbol to myself. I didn't give up. And here we are in front of the judge with a handful of dumb, dumb suckers <laughs> making my dream come true. When someone tells you it can't happen, let that fuel you. Because if you want it bad enough, it will happen. A lot of times I'll question nurture over nature, you know, like with adoption. But he is so us in personality I don't think I could have birthed a child more like John and I. And people are always like, he looks so much like you. And I'm like, that's because you haven't met his birth mother. And we didn't do that on purpose. We didn't set out to find a blonde haired, you know, light colored eyes person so that our child would look like us. It was just one of those things that kind of just happened. But he is a Willis through and through. Thank you again so much. I love you. And I'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Love you too. Thank you for tuning in. I would love to know what your favorite part of this episode was. Tag me at Finding Strength of Heart on Instagram or Facebook, or you can email me at FindingStrengthOfHeart at gmail.com. Until next time, take good care of you, and we'll chat soon.